You're listening to Growth Vertical, a podcast that inspires people to reach the next vertical point in their journeys. My name's Neil Patel and I'm a digital marketer. I'll be sitting down to share my experiences to help others find the right strategies to grow themselves, their careers and their businesses. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Growth Vertical. Today we actually have a special guest, Simon Severino, everybody. You know, Simon actually runs uh, a global consultancy, a B2B consultancy focused on like tech teams and helping them across the globe, uh, globe to scale at ridiculous rates based on certain frameworks that he's actually created for these businesses specifically. You know, Simon has also been featured in places like Forbes and the Entrepreneur Magazine, but is also an advisor to companies like Google, Crayon, and also like Abvi, and that's just to name a few. So today we're going to be actually talking about what B2B startups can do now to double their to double their sales sooner and fuel growth. So the idea is to help these businesses find ways of fueling growth, even though we're in sort of difficult times. So let's get into it. But before then, Simon, it's a pleasure to have you on this show you know we've had a few conversations via email of course and uh we've done some pretty interesting stuff so it'd be good to sort of get a bit of background for the audience on on sort of who you are what you've been doing and and uh, tell us a bit about yourself right hey neil hey everybody i'm so excited to be here and yes you you say it it's tough times and you know a recession or a stagflation they they are exciting times for entrepreneurs actually these are the times where innovation accelerates and where huge opportunities pop up if we are ready and and we will talk also about readiness and being ready and um organizing for readiness actually when this because these things pop up when you don't expect it um but the ones of us who are ready this is actually the the week and the month and the and the year for for life changing innovation life changing investments so yeah let's go there so it's 21 years that i do only one thing and that's go to market coaching i coach people on go to market how they can scale faster and and i prefer b2b because of the high ticket size when you have a high ticket you care more about the other person you can take more time to research them to find out what they really need they want three discovery calls no problem right that's why i like b2b because if your ticket size is above 30k yeah you meet them multiple times and you are actually interested in what they say in in what their dreams are in what they want to avoid and that's that makes the difference that's the art of sales that's the art of closing big deals and that's where i am passionate about so i don't coach teams with small tickets like let's sell 100 bucks of this and 200 uh, sub, of a subscription um, yeah. that where i'm not the best coach i'm the best coach when it's really about understanding how to close um 10 life-changing deals per year and, um, and, and scale that into a business model that is defendable and that you can roll out globally. That's 
that's where I am. And those are the teams that that we coach. And um, I, I might I might share some case studies later on to to make things more tangible and more practical. But basically, uh, when they come to us, they want to find out: Can I grow faster with less headache? The headache for tech teams, the headache is they hate sales. Sales in itself is a headache. I don't want to do prospecting. I don't want to do cold calls. I don't want to read scripts. Uh, and so they hate sales. That's one of the headaches. But they're amazing at building stuff. We are, we are working with the coolest Web3 teams out there. And they're building the future. Like, come on, we, th there are, we have the future of finance on our phone right now. And, and soon you can have a Solana phone, Q1 next year, you can have a Solana phone. It's an Android, I'm sorry, but it's good it's because we have the blockchain on it. So these are super amazing times. And so there are people who can build these amazing things. And we are here to help them with the boring stuff, go to market because for them it's boring we love it we love it and we get that passion across because it's really about exploring ways for growth that are that are there but they don't see them and w when we come in we, we immediately see them we say oh look mm -hmm. you're just doing inbound what about outbound yeah. uh, or oh, you're just doing outbound what about inbound and so there are many things that we can quickly see and help them implement that they don't see because they focus on other things. I think you mentioned that, you know, you're working with these specific teams, but they had, they had to start somewhere, right? So in terms of like, there must've been an underlying motivation for you to go, to come this far and to start strategy sprints and to scale it up until what you've done so far and how many businesses you've actually helped, right? Um, what was that underlying motivation, Simon? That would be yeah. interesting to know. You know, I like the game of scaling, the adrenaline yeah. of this, this mix of intellectual stimulation. Can we build something that's better than what's out there right now? With the emotional stimulation, can we stand the heat? Can we do it faster than our competitors? Can we stand the heat when, when competition comes in, when, other, when technology evolves faster than we are evolving? Will we stay in the game? When, when liquidity gets tough, like right now in, in the first months of a global recession, when currencies collapse, can you stay in the game? We, we call this keep rolling. It's the most important thing. Keep rolling, keep rolling, don't give up. Like right now, people, if you hold Bitcoin, don't sell. Just keep cool, drink tea, keep cool. Okay, check in 10 years. <laughs> keep rolling, keep rolling, all right? And it's similar if you're building something, a, a startup, a B2B mm -hmm. startup, and you are not there yet, you're not making eight figures yet. Just keep rolling, keep rolling. Learn every day something new about the people who you're here to serve. And the more you learn, the more competitive advantage you have because it's all about learning what they really need and how to deliver it. That's it. 
that's it. And then the rest is marketing, how you package it, how you position it better than your competitor. So yeah. I love this game. So when you ask me, why did I land here? I love the intellectual stimulation. Can we find a better way? Um, and I love the emotional intensity because building a startup is, you know, it's such an intense life. It's probably the most rich life that, that you can live. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm always asking myself, what is a rich life for me? And it's that thing that you find pretty exciting, right? So that when you get up, you're just raring to go. I guess some yeah. people compare it like a almost, I mean, I don't want to compare it exactly to a video game, but it's actually like a video game, right? You get a dopamine for getting to the next level and it's exactly like a sport as well. You want to get up, you want to get to the next level, you want to help that person get to the next level. And and when you actually do reach there, you're honestly not, you're, you're excited, of course, you get such a big hit, you get such a rush, but then you're also looking forward to, can I do anything more? Like, it's always an endless cycle. I think that's pretty amazing totally i met a friend today 8 a.m we were having breakfast and 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 he says simon i think you were you, you were already doing stuff today right i said yeah i woke up four o'clock and then this is what i did five o'clock this is what i did at six this is what i did at seven and he goes why do you do it because i'm on fire i love this i i would love a day with like 38 hours instead of 24. yeah so yeah, and that's for me is a rich life. So I, I literally do this mind map. What's a rich life right now for me? And then there is there is people, experiences, projects, and I write them and I scribble them and I go, wow, that's that's exactly my dream. Mm -hmm. And then and the gap, the gap is almost zero when you are an entrepreneur because you can do that every day. Yeah, I think it's pretty incredible. Even even for me, um, it's been a few years now, actually, but transitioning from being solely in-house and then moving externally, I was able to sort of look at projects, right, but multiple and seeing how, I think it's the problem-solving aspect that got so interesting because there are problems within the one role or the one project, but when you start to look at multiple projects, I just love the fact that you can maybe use something that's a pro in one project and sort of transfer it into something else because it's absolutely complementary. And so, uh, you know, it might, might seem like it's a copy paste sort of mechanism, but it's not right. It's, it's like, if you know, it's going to work and you know that there's a chance of it working, you know, it's incredible to even play that game and connect the dots between similar businesses or even just solve the problem behind something that's fresh, right? Something that's a brand new in the market. And I think that sort of brings us to this point of being agile, right? In this current, in this current environment, especially with what's going on. And um, for for everyone out there, you know, Simon's also got this book, right? So strategy, so uh, strategy sprints, and Simon have this book. You know, the twelve ways to sort of accelerate growth for business, right? It's something I want to, I'm going to definitely read because, uh, you know, being in marketing, I was saying this to you, Simon, before the call, right? Being in marketing, it's it's one of those things where <clears throat> we want to focus on sort of growth, rapid experimentation. So understanding, hey, these are our best options from our understanding of what we can assess in the market. This is what we need to implement over the next 30 to 90 days. And this is what's worked. So we're going to scale that up because this shows the most promise for growth, right, uh, based on the results. 
And so like, I'm super keen on, you know, sort of reading that, but for everyone out there, you know, we'll probably get into the aspects of the book, obviously throughout this episode, but uh, I will link it for everyone to sort of read. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think going back to that point, sorry, Simon, but being agile is important, right? As opposed to the traditional way of running business, which may be a little bit more, I don't want to use the word red tape, but very waterfall-esque type of methodology, right? And that's really doing one thing, then once it's perfected, then moving on to the next. Whereas we're in an area where things are so fast moving, you know, especially this current day and age, it actually can help you win or lose the battle between, even if you have the potential to beat a giant, you could lose out on that opportunity because you're not moving quick enough and you're not working smart enough. So why do you think being agile, especially for startups, uh, you know, or these SMBs, right? Why it's so important for them, especially in the B2B world in this current day and age? Yeah, the question is how quickly can you react to their life changing and their needs changing and therefore your offer, your product changing. Mm-hmm. So if you can change at the same pace that they are changing, then you're agile. And if you can't, then you're rigid. That's the main difference. So for example, you live in the UK and um, your currency is collapsing. Your clients are affected by that. Um, it how many days does it take for you to adapt your offer accordingly or to start a new offer in your zone of genius? That is what they need right now. So, for example, when the pandemic hit, I was surprised. I didn't see it coming. Everything was um, happening pretty pretty fast for us. Mm-hmm. But we started two days later a mastermind, a free mastermind, open to the whole world. And it, the topic was, was every Monday for 10 sessions. And the topic was managing the current situation. A very vague topic, but the only relevant thing on everybody's mind. And so we had nothing to sell there, but we did hold the space for the people we are here to serve, for the entrepreneurs. And so we had people who manage airlines in there, they were grounded and they were talking about what is this? How long is this going to take? What do I do with my personnel, et cetera. And they were talking to each other. And what, what about your country and your country? And so we were just holding space. And, and the important thing is that we, we could start this in, in, in two days. So that was agile enough to cope with that situation. Mm -hmm. Right now, you have supply chains collapsing, currencies collapsing, and then who knows what's next, right? It might be geopolitical um, stuff coming up. It might be um, social unrest in your city. So there will be stuff. And the question is, how quickly can you react? Right. And that's agility. And you can do that by, by organizing already now in a way that will help you be agile in a year. So you don't have to wait for stuff to happen. You can organize this week already. You can implement the three habits, for example. I'm happy to share them. And then you're agile. And that's what I explain a lot in the book. It's a daily habit, a weekly habit, and a monthly habit. People can even download them. 
And I, I use them every day, and that's what keeps us agile and our clients. So daily, how did you allocate your time today? What will you delegate tomorrow? It's just your, your day. How did you allocate your time? Mm-hmm. And then what will you delegate tomorrow? And you can delegate to a software, to a person in your team, or to a person outside your team. But you have to pick one every day. And that is a simple exercise, but that's the foundation for scaling. And you cannot start soon enough to do that. In the beginning, you will just delegate to a software. Oh, this will get done by Zapier. This will get done by IFTTT, etc. Start with that. And then later on, you hire when you have more cash flow. But it's important that you get into the practice of, you know, after you solve the problem, you hand it over. You move to the next bigger problem. That's the practice. That's what Elon Musk does. He just does it better than most of us. And so we have, but we have to practice the same thing. Solve the AI problem, then parachute the AI team into Twitter. And then three weeks later, they have solved the bot problem. You move them to the rocket problem. That's, that's, it's the same practice. Week, weekly habit. The three numbers that matter most, are we moving in the right direction at the right pace? I want one marketing number, one sales number, and one operations number reported every Thursday. And every Friday, we want to learn from it. And when I say we, is one person from operations, one from marketing, one from sales, plus the owner or founder. And we all look at this dashboard of three numbers, current, target, gap. Let's learn. What's working? This week, let's do more of it. What's not working, let's do less. This is where you run multiple quick experiments. So instead of you know a project that runs for two months at 10K, we do three hours of a 500 bucks um, test. Three hours, 500 bucks, you can test most assumptions. And you run multiple of those in a week on Thursday, you have learned something. And guess guess which teams crush it? The teams who learn more. So if you run 50 experiments per month and your competitors run just five experiments per month, your probability is higher that you will find something that's really, really working. And when you found that, you moved into the next stage. Now it's about scaling. The first stage is about finding the offer that converts. That's usually around 35K MRR when you've, you've, you realize, oh, we hit, we, 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 we got it. Mm-hmm. We got it. Now it's just about systemizing and scaling. So you shift into the next stage. I, the first one I call the exploration stage up to 35K MRR. And then you are into the scaling stage. But scaling is a completely different game. Uh, but it's this, the same three habits. Daily habit, how are you allocating your time? Delegate one next. Weekly, three numbers. Are we moving in the right direction at the right pace? What's popping up? Because when you scale, stuff starts to break. You will see it in the dashboard. You will see it in the weekly dashboard. And so you have systems that, that break and you have to write new SOPs that can cope with the next level of complexity. And then uh, the monthly habit 
is, is the competitive analysis. What else can our clients do on their own? They might do nothing. They might hire Mike the intern to do it. They might hire a full-time person to do it. What else can they do if they buy from our top three competitors? Who are the current top three competitors? What are they doing? And then the top 10 features, find the two where you are winning and the two where you're losing. Cut the costs for the next from the next month's budget. Cut the costs from the two features where you are not winning right now. Mm -hmm. Let's say that's 15% of your monthly budget. And reinvest it immediately in the next month's winning features. So those are two features where you are currently winning and you reinvest them immediately next month. You reinvest immediately 15% more money and attention onto that. So you are already winning. You put now 15% more energy into that. You're crushing it. And it's harder for your competitors to eat your lunch. Yeah, it's... It is... Sorry, go for it. I was just gonna say, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting because it keeps. It sounds like it keeps them, well, they're resilient at the same time, but they're also uncovering the actual thing behind. You know what's going to help them grow. Exactly. Yeah. And with those three things, now whatever the weather doesn't really matter, right? You get the weak signals every week. You are scaling. Every day, you are micro-scaling every day, and that creates a, a meso-scaling and a macro-scaling over time. But you need the micro, because what people forget is the micro, right? <laughs> Some entrepreneurs are great at dreaming up big plans and visions, etc. But it's the nitty-gritty of doing it every day that, that really creates the practice, right? Bruce Lee was not... Uh, a strong fighter because he has a great he had a great vision he was just practicing every day and then that's how you compound and um, and the practice of scaling a business is every day you write down your time you delegate one thing next you solve the problem you hand it over you move to the bigger problem you mentioned when you're actually running experiments that's you know you increase the probability of you finding the winner and that's something i think is the currency of today because there are so many so many strategies that we could sort of create to actually have a tactical advantage, right, for a business. But the tactical aspects also need to be, mi essentially micro tests need to be run for those too. So you're right in the sense that, and I've seen it, I always say that as well, right? If we run more experiments within the month, we are more likely to uncover something in comparison to someone that's running one a month they might be spending too much time on that one and realizing it just doesn't work so i quite like that you mentioned that and we're in a time where i feel founders are actually may not want to experiment right because but i think what we need to push to them is that you can i think founders can experiment they can do it on a smaller budget and in a shorter time frame that's the only way that they'll uncover something because I guess gathering some data to tell them whether it's going to work or not is better than not having any data at all and maybe waiting for three to 12, even 12 months, right? One year of not doing anything, not much testing. And that's too yeah. long. It's too long. And so 
from what I got, you, you should actually founders should founders and startup owners, everyone, they should be actually focusing and seeing these on as opportunities, right? Like at the time where so many businesses are almost scared to spend a lot of money, you know, we're talking about ad in from a marketing and sales standpoint, I guess you see the cost of certain platforms decrease, right? CPMs decrease, CPCs decrease in cost because there's just not much competition. Everyone's pulling out. I think those are the times to, to sort of double down. And then that's when you should even, if anything, set up more experiments because you can do it at a cheaper cost, right? And people are still going to be on those platforms. Yeah, so I, I, I do usually folk, like mention to focus on those activities and things that specifically impact the primary KPI because then they can optimize things further that show promise, right? That's pretty important in itself. So I think if we talk about startups versus the enterprises, do you think that in this environment, the startups have the advantage to do this over these giants, especially with the way the market is right now? Because things have changed drastically, right? Especially in the way we work, and how we work, you know, this remote and hybrid sort of frameworks that we're using. Um, there are, I've seen a few companies that do it really well, right? Systematize something, get an SOP down, and guess what? They're able to optimize something in a very efficient way at a remote, in a remote setting. So do you think that startups have that sort of advantage over those giants? Size doesn't matter, velocity matters. Uh, velocity is direction and speed. So it's speed, including the direction of the speed. Are we moving in the right direction and are we moving fast? So if you have velocity, that makes the difference. And I see very small teams having velocity and I, say, I see huge teams having velocity. Amazon has velocity. Google has velocity. You know, and then there are many small teams who don't have velocity. They have meetings committees there are 15 people and they have like seven committees so they don't have velocity and and then there are big houses who crush it and do not work in a legacy way they explore like yesterday google shut down google stadia and in is refunding everybody's hardware expenses yeah that's that's fast that's fast. They run, I, I think, a thousand experiments per month at Google, and they kill two or three of them per month. So, and that's that's velocity. You test stuff. It's not working for you. You just stop it. Amazing. That's exactly how everybody should build many many experiments, and don't be afraid to cut to cut the losers. Yeah. Now, some people say, oh, my God, but Stadia, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, but it right now for the strategy of Google, it's a loser. So let's cut it. That's velocity. That's velocity. You can do that. Of course, with a small team, you can do that much. You can pivot easier. And you can try so much stuff without permission. That's, that's the great thing about right. being a startup. You don't ask for permission. You just go and do it. You sketch it quickly in Figma. Two hours later, you put $100 on a Google ad. And then three hours later, either it works or it doesn't. 
do you think that time matters though because sometimes in a certain time frame you can't get enough data to ascertain whether something is powerful for your business or not right sometimes it needs more time and in that event what what would you suggest because i guess there is some element of testing that requires more days for data to be gathered right i see many experiments and 99% of them can be time compressed you can time compress by by segmenting the right way so for example we have a client right now who is thinking about to enter a market is not sure and so we said okay let's segment the market let's pick one city in that country we picked a city and this is about uh pharmacies so you know there are thousands of pharmacies in that mm -hmm. country and so we said what if we pick one city in that city just one uh, arrondissement one one part of the city and then in that part of the city we how many pharmacies do we need to check so that we know if we scale it on the whole country that it's still the same structure we found that out it was 17 pharmacies so you can do that in one arrondissement mm -hmm. 17 pharmacies tested there for three days uh running interviews you know, three types of interviews the problem interview and then the prototype interview and the solution interview in three days with teams of five people going through to the 17 pharmacies and after three days, we, we, we knew enough. And now they're rolling out uh, the completely new product. It's a CBD product in the whole country after three days of testing. And most people, if you ask them, how long does it take to do a market research? They would say, oh, six months and 30,000 bucks. Traditional market research, right? Total addressable market, calculating, and then uh, a lot of money creating a ton of slides whatever and workshops etc and then yeah. six months later they find out oh yeah we should enter it but guess what the guys who did test for three days they are already delivering there mm -hmm. yeah so it's a, i guess it can be it can be cut down by segmentation i i think one of the strategies especially that we run on our end is more so I don't even describe this, but it's actually to do with segmenting the data, the audience, so that you can say, hey, this is our high profile audience. We know these guys would work because we have a few existing deals with these particular stakeholders, et cetera. So let's focus on that. We know that the CPCs or the CPMs are going to be super expensive. You upload, you do a value driven uh, campaign where you upload a hundred of your real clients mm. and then you test it for three days on those real value, value-based campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that- If you know them. If not, you have to, to work with, with other, other methods. But if you know them, you do a value-based campaign. Yeah. I mean, you can always find the right audience strategy, segmentation strategy on a platform like LinkedIn, right? So, in that case, you could this, you know, LinkedIn's powerful. You've got tons of like sort of audience insight to understand. You just need to use the targeting capabilities to understand that market, what the audience size is, right? And you can say, hey, maybe we shouldn't test using a broader category because we know that we have, there's people, there's enough people here with a when we do it laser focused. 
So let's put our money into that because logically it would work. Yeah, and let me give you a bonus content for the startupers uh, listening. Because when you're a startup, um, you 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 have just a, a constraint in cash flow. So what we do with startups is that we immediately focus on the buying intent. We don't even target. We go to the buying intent immediately mm-hmm. and do then the targeting. We do backwards backwards avataring so first you sell deliver sell deliver sell deliver and then you have a sample of a hundred clients and now backwards now you target because backwards you know okay of those 100 which one were the most impactful the easiest to work with the most fun to work with and the one who referred most and now you you find the criteria because mostly people think that doing a, an ideal client uh, targeting or avatar, they think it's the first step. It's actually not the first step for a startup uh, because you don't know enough. It's theory. So mm-hmm. first you deliver 100 times. And so first, of course, you learn and you, you build it manually. Um, it doesn't scale yet, but you build it while you are delivering. So you build it on demand, mm-hmm. right? And then you say, all right, now we have built it. it these, these are the five criteria of the ones this was working best for. Now you extract that, you standardize that, and you say, okay, that's the product. Now that is the product. Stop experimentation. And then, and then two things happen. First, now you have a standardized product. You can go and scale it. Now you can go to affiliate partners and say, I know exactly who this is for, what it does. Look at these results. Do you want to sell it? And now you can have affiliate partnerships. Mm-hmm. You can have what we call referral teams. You can have up to 50 people per year going out there promoting your stuff. That's what we do. We have 50 people per year, so one per week, affiliate partners who promotes our stuff. And you can build those referral teams organically without paying anything that you pay from the profits. And so that's another organic thing that you can do. And now backwards, it's much easier to find your ideal client than forward. Because forward, you're always guessing, it's theory. But backwards, you know exactly. And so my experience is it's easier to do the targeting in the second place. And that's exactly the opposite of what everybody writes in their book. But the practitioners know it that you learn every month about your targeting. It's not the first step. It's an ongoing optimization that works uh, backwards. Yeah, we, we whenever I lay out a strategy with any of the clients we worked with and have worked with historically as well, it's always been backwards, even in the funnel, right? You learn the most at the bottom and then you look at what you can implement at the top. Um, and then from there, it's more so a thing of, hey, okay, we know that these are the best sort of identifiers that we can focus on. Now let's go and see where else we can take those identifiers and then build out the entire marketing strategy based on that. So I think that actually helps fuel growth much sooner and find those low having, hanging fruits, we call it, right? Whilst you're setting up long-term strategy. 
do you think it's important do you think that there, there's a lot of businesses actually treating this as business as usual though right now you know with the way that the market is right almost being quite reserved or i should say i should say in in sort of scarce times that's how businesses tend to react right so why do you think it's important for like businesses to adapt to the recession rather than um adapt in a way sorry adapt to the recession in a way where they can take advantage of it opposed to to uh adapting in a way where they have to just treat business as usual right because life is changing for your users so if their life changes why do you expect them to take the same decisions buy the same products nobody is i i, I was sitting today with with my friend um having breakfast and he tells me that a ton of his friends are thinking about you know changing the way they heat their their apartment mm-hmm. those are radical questions like changing the way you live and also that some of them are and i'm in europe so this is a country where people don't run around with weapons in their hand and they are thinking of weaponizing themselves to be able to defend their family so it's and this is for for a european it, it's a completely shift in in lifestyle and in values so when the world of your users changes with with such intensity why do you think you can just keep the products the same and they are still solving the same thing they will not decide the same way they are now rebudgeting they're thinking about their life they're doing this exercise what's what's a rich life for me and they are evaluating and they say okay safety is more important now and i don't know holidays are less important so they will change uh their budget they will change many decisions right now and if you want to be around you better be part of that process and be there with them that's why when 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 society shifts so much we start those masterminds i i want to be there in those decision making processes with them because first i want to be there for them that's we are here to serve them so i don't let them alone in tough times i hold the space that's the first thing as a brand do you really care then show it right and and you should care <laughs> and then because otherwise you're a weak brand you're not really about them mm-hmm. and so so where's the passion then then it's just a technical transaction boring i'm i'm one click away from something that is more exciting than your brand yeah so you'd better be excited and yeah sorry i was just gonna say and i guess that the... is i want to hear the weak signals i want to mm-hmm. i want to hear early enough when they say yeah i'm gonna weaponize my family mm. i don't want to know it you know when when the degree of market saturation is high i, w- I want to know this very early because i might be able to tweak my offer in order to serve them right now in this process i think yeah i think it's uh, it's it's important when you mention it that way because even when we're so involved in just the core execution of one let's say just one strategy one tactic for example you tend to forget that as the market's changing the the views in which the problem is perceived is also changing right so the appeal in which you're selling to someone and wanting to sell to that whether it's an emotional benefit right it's 
now it's slightly different. They have maybe a different emotional benefit that's going to stop them to think about the problem. Whereas if you keep leading with the one that was maybe last year sometime, right? And that's what you scale the business on. You can experience a sort of plateau, right? Where you're saying, hey, this, these form even right down to the tactical stuff, right? These ad creatives aren't working. This messaging's not working. This, pers- this positioning's not working. So we need to push the problem in a way that's adapting to what's happening now and not back then. It was, do you think that's a good yeah. way of looking at it? Yeah. Totally. I, I always say to, to our clients, I say, have a strong position loosely held. So, for example, I had a very strong position on Apple for the last decade. <laughs> and, and it was one of my biggest assets in my portfolio. Uh, Apple, Google, Tesla were my, my three big, big assets. Last week, I sold all Apple. Everything. So I have still a strong position on Apple. I love my MacBook Pro. I'm using it right now. I'm, and I love it. But um, the fundamentals have changed. I was thinking, how many iPhones are they really going to sell? And it's the 14th time that they are selling the same phone. Come on. How long can that go well, right? Yeah. Uh, at some point, people will will get it, right? And so... Okay, no, no, no. Let me sell this thing, and it's 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 down eight percent since when I sold. So yes, have a strong position, but loosely held. Be ready to go with the flow to change. And um, yeah, Tesla is now my, my Tesla and Solana are my biggest now um, positions, mm-hmm. and uh, because that's changing. If you look at the fundamentals, they are massively winning against everybody else in their field. So when you find a new winning horse, you move with the winning horse. Same thing with your offers, with your services, with your products. Yes, love them, but loosely hold them. You know, when you, when you love somebody, you, you, you loosely, you loosely uh, relate to them. Yes, with passion, but always with, you know, freedom and flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, in, and same thing with your offers. Yes, they are your babies. You built this solution. You built this feature. But also learn to let go of the feature if you see that it's not the most important thing for your users. So you will have enough passion about the next feature. You have to let go. Yeah, I think that's, that's super important. And something actually that, that actually brings up a point about what we were talking about beforehand, right? And there was you mentioned turning sort of fixed costs into variable costs, right? And I wanted to learn a bit more about that because it feels like it's sort of edging into what you're you're trying to say now, where you have to adapt as well, what you're saying now. And, you know, I guess what strategy are you teaching the current tech teams that you're working with to achieve profitability, but also achieve scale, right? You know, you mentioned talking before the show about talking about the sort of renegotiation of contracts, right? Because of the way things are and how people perceive some of these things. and sort of renegotiating those contracts to suppliers, you know, agencies, so that the the months where it costs more, you can sort of scale um, up. And then the months where it sort of costs less to do in a month, you sort of scale down, right? And I, I forgot the terms that you use. These are res- resilience. I don't know if it's de-risking or de-risking, but... Um, de-risking. Yeah. De-risk everything. I'm a de-risker. I don't like risk. I like reward. So I maximize for reward. Mm-hmm. I minimize risk. So wherever I can reduce risk, I reduce risk. 
everywhere in all life decisions. And because they are all about risk reward, there is nothing else than the ratio of risk reward in every decision. Mm-hmm. Now, how can you do it when you look at the costs? Because the costs are, if they are important costs, they are investments actually. So you put $1,000 into Facebook ads because you expect 1,800 from there. So the, it's always a risk reward calculation. Now, how can you de-risk the risk, the risk part? The biggest cost positions that you have are probably personnel and then suppliers. I hope that you are not spending a ton in, in brick and mortar stuff, stuff that uh, it's not 1981. Uh, so I hope you are born, born cloud and that your main cost positions are personnel, suppliers, agencies, and software, okay? And if, if those are your biggest positions, think how can you move them from fixed to variable? So let's say you have a PR firm, and the PR firm, you're paying them 5K per month mm-hmm. to get you onto magazines. Stop that. Think about what are the magazines you want to be featured in, and then negotiate the price. When they hit that, you pay for that. So you get me in the Wall Street Journal, you get 2K. You get me in the New York Times, you get 41K. You will lose the first PR agency and the second and the third, but after 10 interviews, you will find the right partner for you, and that will be a much better partner because they trust their capability of execution. They, they are telling you if they take this offer that they really have the network, which you never know in advance. And, um, and you know, after hundreds of those contracts, I could tell you stories. I have wasted so much money with the wrong contracts, with the wrong agencies. And, and in a nutshell, have negotiate always performance-based contracts that are around performance and that you can change monthly because that's the most resilient and the more the most agile thing you can do and then you actually have business partners on the other side not just people who say oh he's he's paying two bucks i do two hours you pay me three bucks i do three hours no that's not a business partnership a business partnership is i want you to succeed Mm -hmm. and i want to make part of that profits that's what motivates me and so you can do that with all things. Uh, you can do it with your employees. Like you can create a certification program. Like I have my colleagues paying to be on my team right now because it's a certification program. So they pay to be a certified strategy sprints coach. They come to the Monday meeting super motivated. And it's zero risk. If I had a zero sales month, I had zero costs. And if I 10x, I can easily add 10 countries. It takes me a week mm. to add 10 countries, you know, because it's a scalable model in both ways. You, it's, it's de-risked, but there is a lot of alpha in there. So find the business model that gives you that resilience on the downside, but still gives you the opportunity on the upside. This is why we teach 13 different types of network effects. Those, you have to understand those things. And it's not just for, for huge uh, volume of users. It's, it's also for, for a B2B 
um, just few clients, few big deals and, and small teams, you also have network effects. Um, it's, it's, it's the same principles and they can fortify your business and make it more resilient and, and they can even make it totally unstoppable because when a network effect starts, starts really working, mm -hmm. it's unstoppable. Yeah, I never would have thought about it like that, right? I think um, it, I know in the interest of time, you know, we should probably close off soon, but I think to elaborate on or to ask a little bit more about something that you mentioned was uh, about de-risking. It seems like it works, it would work with suppliers. I mean, maybe you can renegotiate internal contracts, but is there a reason why you would use it seems like that benefits you if you actually use an external resource, right? Like an agency and stuff, because then you can control that relationship. Whereas if you take on the load in-house, would you say that it's harder to sort of pivot to that sort of strategy? I like both. I want my team to learn. So let's say lead gen, for example. Should, should I have an agency out there doing lead gen or should I have my team? I want setters, I want closers, and I want an external agency. And all the three will be paid for performance. None of them will be paid for sitting around. They will all be paid for performance. And, uh, and we will pay more than industry average because we want the brightest of them. And um, you want the externals because they have the expertise. If they are really the best at what they do, then they have tried so many things and you can save time. So I want to save time in the first two months of setting up an inbound system, an outbound system, because the first months, there's so much stuff that you can do wrong if you just experiment. For example, warming up, warming up cold emails. How many days should you warm them up? If you try to find it out yourself, you will go for 14 days and, and you will immediately lose. An expert knows, no, 30 days. So these kind of things, you don't have to experiment. You just buy the blueprints. That's what I want from an external expert. So you have the blueprints, share the blueprints with me. So we are experts in how to scale a business. We have 274 blueprints. A team who's building an amazing tech solution doesn't need to reinvent the scaling wheel. They can use our blueprints. Same thing when I try to reinvent Legion, I don't want to reinvent it. Come on, you know what's working? Bring me what's working. I'm happy to pay from each profit of every closed deal. Much more than you can get on a retainer. Much more. Because yeah. it's fine. I have, I have good margins. And I'm happy to share them with my partners. Mm -hmm. So, and now you are creating a win-win-win flywheel. But you have also your setters in the team, and they are also in the same platform, in the same Slack group, in the same weekly uh, meetings that we call the analytics meeting. Mm -hmm. So my setters are learning, my closers are learning, and the expert, the experts are sharing knowledge for money. I think that's a win-win-win situation. So I want both my team to be on it, but I want the experts to save us time and to bring immediately the blueprints. 
I think that's a good way of looking at it because when you set up that sort of internal framework and you it's it's a lot more scalable right because you're essentially value would, would these be the right terms but value stacking I would say yeah and you are essentially doing it so that when you do stack the value you know at the end of the tunnel that's obviously a multiplier right so you have an efficient system all systems go running to deliver value at scale I think that's a good way, really good way of looking at it, actually. And it's something I'm doing internally. So I'm trying to find how can I remove myself to be more strategic and be able to step back and say, I know what pieces need to go together for this business or this project. But I know that I don't need to be the expert in all those little pieces anymore, but I should get someone that knows those things specifically. Because it would be hard for me to then keep up with the new industry like trends and that sort of stuff for every single thing every single channel every single tactical new strategy that we're building and it's harder to scale if it's just me right exactly the potential is much higher if it's with other with experts so uh, yeah it's, it's it's definitely uh an interesting but very impactful way of looking at it and you can scale them out after three to six months. As soon as it works, you can scale the external partners out. The knowledge stays with you. Your people take over. And now you increase the budget from the profits because now you have something that's working. From the profits, you increase the budget for your people. They, With that budget, they start now hiring. I don't even know all the people in my, in my marketing team anymore because now uh, they are hired by the marketing team. So I, I meet them after, after they are, they're working uh, with us since three weeks. It's the first time sometimes that I meet them. <laughs> and it's and that it works. works. Yeah. But because um, yeah, the processes no, are always the same. You know, we solve a problem, we write it down. That's an SOP. We hand over the SOP mm. and we have our daily check-in. But we know that it works. And so when we hand it over, that is already working. They just have to continue doing something. We don't hire for, uh, you know, s solve huge problems. We hire for continue doing this, which is working very well. And again, it fits what you said about experimentation. You experimented with that idea first, that yeah. system. When you found out it was working, then you're scaling it up. Yeah. Well, this has uh, actually been amazing, Simon. Um, I don't know, before, before we sort of sign off, is there anything you feel like everyone else should know? Like anything else that anyone should know? There's so much. Uh, there is so much. <laughs> a bit loaded, yeah. I, you know, I started two YouTube channels because mm. there is so much that I need to share. Every week I'm learning something, I'm doing my own mistakes and sharing them on YouTube. So there is so much to learn here. I run a, a full mastermind of 45 entrepreneurs and I share every day. We have a Slack channel and every day I share some insights, some mistakes that I see happening or that we do and some, some insights and some learnings. There is so much people can, can hang out with us. We are, you find us at strategiesprints.com. Uh, the book is on Amazon strategy sprints and, and there is a YouTube channel, Simon Severino, where I share every week what, what I'm, what I'm learning. Uh, right now yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for that, that Simon. and obviously, obviously for everyone i'll link to that in the description below so that's so a bit easier for everyone to find um and i know i'm definitely going to be consuming the book because it's uh something i'm usually like i usually like to read up on 
and our agile strategies and how to actually improve processes to scale up yeah. things. Yeah. And let me know what you think of it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'll definitely be um, letting you know what I think. I'll probably have a chance to implement it over the next 30 to 90 days as well. And then just see how, wow. how it changes. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, no, everyone, everyone, I appreciate you all tuning in, you know, we, with the current difficulties businesses are facing, you know, with these strategies, especially in the B2B area, tech startups can really sort of shift their viewpoint or their, their perception towards how to actually interact with or sort of take their experiments forward to grow their business. And, you know, maintaining a good growth trajectory is to obviously experiment as much as you can in the shortest time frame so you can beat out the other competitors that are obviously doing less experiments. But um, no, no, Simon, Simon has been, been incredible, incredible insightful. insightful. And, and uh, I, think I think this is something some people can definitely take, take you know, some, some great, great tips from and actionable insights, I would say. So, so Simon, so I guess one thing before we go is where can everyone follow you? Or if they had any questions, where can they sort of contact you? They find many blueprints that I mentioned on strategiesprints.com. Um, the book is on Amazon. It's called Strategy Sprints. And my, my daily YouTube channel is called Simon Severino. Awesome. Well, I'll link to that and uh, we'll be definitely tagging you. But uh, yeah, everyone, if you did uh, like today's video um, or audio, depending on what platform you're consuming this, please be sure to sort of like, subscribe or follow. And if you do want to see any particular topics or see Simon back on the show, then, you know, do comment below. Of course, there's plenty of things we can talk about because uh, Simon's got a, a quite a few case studies and probably had had to hold back in the entire bank on this episode, of course, but he shared some really insightful ones. But yeah, uh, do share so that this sort of message can get out there for other startups and other businesses out there that are looking to scale. Um, otherwise, we'll see you guys in the next episode. So take it easy. And Simon, once again, thank you for coming and being here with us today. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, everybody. Keep rolling.